I'm Brian Marcy, and this is the Digiday Podcast. This week, we're trying something a little bit different. We like to get into the nuts and bolts of digital media and how it really works. And that can get very messy, especially when you're talking about programmatic advertising, everyone's favorite topic. Several years ago, we started a series called WTF is Programmatic in order to explain in plain English how the various parts of the ad tech world work, or in many cases, do not work. In this week's episode, we are bringing WTF is Programmatic to life with Hearst Magazine's Chief Data Officer, Mike Smith, a real-life ad tech guru. I talked to Mike about the ins and outs of programmatic advertising, the history of ad tech and how it came to be, arbitrage ad networks, and much, much more. Hope you enjoy it and maybe even learn something. And let us know what you think about this format. Mike, I'm glad to have you on this podcast to explain what the heck is going on in programmatic. Thank you, Brian. I'm, I'm thrilled to be here. Um, because you're really good at this. You're really good at explaining um, uh, for the layman uh, what is going on with ad tech. So when you are asked by someone, even like, you know, they, they can be in the media industry, but they really don't, really don't, aren't fully immersed in this. How do you overall explain programmatic advertising? Because a lot of people describe it differently. I usually start with real-time bidding. I think real-time bidding is is foundational. So understanding real-time bidding I feel is important. So what I typically explain is that when when you visit a website, whether from your laptop, iPad, or mobile device, uh, iPhone, and you and you and you request through your browser uh, the New York Times or the Atlantic or L.com while you're, as a, as a consumer, while you're waiting for the page to load, which generally takes under one second, in, in a portion of that space of time, an auction takes place. An auction not unlike uh, at the New York Stock Exchange or any... Or, or, or any other auction analogy. But there aren't like, you know, guys in mustaches and loud blazers shouting. That That's true, but increasingly on the New York <laughs> Stock Exchange. It's electronic, yes. It, it's becoming electronic. So the, these are very uh, rapid, computationally performed auctions, buy, sell. Um, and that's what's happening with, with advertising. In, increasingly, it's becoming... Uh, transacted less with people and more with computers. Now, pe- people play um, uh, an important role, will continue to, but at, at higher and higher levels of deal-making, of campaign management, of attribution analysis. But underneath programmatic is, is real-time bidding, and, and while you're wait, waiting for that page to load, that one second or less... You're, you're, the, the ad in front of you, the ad that's about to appear in front of you is, is decided at an auction. Your, your information, some of your information, typically anonymous information, uh, but not always, is, is made visible to auction participants and, and hundreds or even thousands of companies in that instant bid a, a small price against each other 
and and the highest bidder wins the mm-hmm. opportunity to put an ad right. in front of you based on what they know and based on what has been exposed Correct. in the auction. Right? That's exactly right. It's interesting that you you start with the auction though because I, I feel like for many years they usually went to programmatic and they said it's the opposite of manual um, and that it's just the automation and they. There, there was this thought that RTB is just one part of programmatic. But why do you, why do you start with the auction when explaining what is going on in programmatic, and not just say, "Oh, it's the automation"? Because I don't believe it's automation. I, I believe that uh, programmatic is as, is as peopled as non-programmatic, but it's, it's a somewhat different set of skills. A lot of people that, uh, whose skills were applicable in. Uh, in the non-programmatic and continue to be, develop complementary skills and become uh, equally uh, able to contribute in the programmatic world. But the the auction, I mean, one aspect of this is when, when ads are bought the traditional way on an insertion order and trafficked by ad ops, the publisher's in control of fulfillment, delivery, ad targeting, pacing, in programmatic, that uh, control shifts to the buyer. So it goes from seller to buyer. I start with the auction because I, in my research, uh, suggests that that is the fundamental paradigm shift, which began a paid search at Overture. So Overture created an auction model for paid search, which then Google Overture had great success with it, were, were later acquired by Yahoo, but then Google uh, built a better mousetrap and, and became uh, the company that it is today. And, and just to, to, to jump in there, um, what Overture, go to, yes. if you will, before even Overture, w- what they found was that people originally were just put, placing ads on search results pages, but they said, well, what if people could buy specific words and not only buy specific words, but what if we created an auction in which these people could bid on these terms? Right? Exactly. Um, and then how did Google perfect that? Because that was a pretty blunt auction. Yes. Bill Gross, Ted Mizell, at, at Overture, at GoTo, they invented essentially, they created what you describe. Where, where advertisers can bid for keywords and keyword phrases. And in their case, the highest bidder got the highest placement. So, Brian, if you bid a, a dollar for a phrase and mm-hmm. I bid $2 for a phrase, my, my ad placement would go above yours. Your question about Google's uh, evolution of that, one major aspect, as was described to me by Ted Mizell, was that Google injected um, click-through rate into the calculation. So y- you may bid $2, yeah, and I may bid $1, but if your ad has a click-through rate of 1 in 10 and my ad has an ad click-through rate of 5 in 10, I would actually be right. up here above you. That was one of Google's major innovations. Another that Ted described to me was that AdWords was a very simple way to mm-hmm. buy ads. So I would imagine, based on Ted's description, that Overture's interface for buying ads required some technical skills, right. whereas the AdWords interface, as Ted described it to me, and as we've all experienced, is actually open, open to the public. 
So right now, we're talking about the early 2000s. And at that time, most of internet advertising was um, banner ads. We used to call them banner ads, right? Yes. Um, and those were direct sold, but there were also ad networks. Yes. Um, explain the role of ad networks at that time. Well, the, the publishers sold uh, banners uh, directly through people and, tra- and, and fulfilled them through ad ops departments on the, on the publisher side. Um, very manual. Very manual. Trafficking in DFP typically mm-hmm. or, or 24-7 open ad stream. And, and the, or and those are ad servers. Correct. Just. Publisher ad servers. And, and then ad networks like Advertising.com, which AOL later bought. Uh, ad networks, typically they got started with, generally speaking, two people. One that dealt with publishers and one that dealt with advertisers. The person who dealt with publishers would go to every publisher and say, you don't sell all of your display, your banner inventory, mm-hmm. so let us sell on your behalf what you yourself don't sell. And th- and then the other the partner and that's a rep ad network essentially yes, yeah. so so I I was at Forbes at the time uh, I'm sure this was as true for Hearst at the time, and and any other publisher that that the publisher's direct sales team would sell about half the ads fifty percent of the inventory every month the other fifty percent of the inventory whichever ad network or ad networks you would uh, do business with as a publisher would rep the other 50%. And then what happened was the, the, the other side of the ad network, the, the part that dealt with the advertisers, would go to the advertisers and understandably compete with the publishers. But the pitch by the right. ad network was, I have access to Forbes inventory, Business Week inventory, Wall Street Journal inventory, New York Times inventory, plus Mm -hmm. we have some technology that can target audience segments. Yeah. But it would drive you nuts at Forbes because ValueClick was out there with the Forbes logo in their their sales decks. Yes, that's true. Yes. (laughs) Which which we as publishers empowered. Right. Um, Explain the difference then of like a rep ad network at the time and like an arbitrage network. Well, in, in my definition, a rep would, would um, I mean, they're, they're both versions of arbitrage. The rep network uh, sells the ad and keeps mm-hmm. a percentage, keeps 15%, keeps 20%, keeps 50%, depending on the deal they cut with the publisher. And is, is that, strictly speaking, arbitrage? Maybe not exactly, because the, the rep is not... Uh, taking a position in the inventory, they're not buying the inventory up front, and 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 they either sell it or 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 don't sell it, having already paid for it. Um, I, I guess that would be called a principal in the transaction, mm-hmm. as opposed to an agent. So I, I associate the agent, uh, the, the the rep role is more of an agency role, in in an agent's role, I should say, in terms of repping the inventory and anything they sell, they get a percentage of. Now, arbitrage ad networks, let's let's define version one as the um, ad network actually commits to the publisher uh, an amount certain that the ad network will buy. So so the ad network will buy $100,000 worth of ads every month or a million dollars worth of ads every month at this pre-negotiated CPM. So that 
that arbitrage ad network now has taken a position in the inventory now has to- They've taken risk. They've taken risk. That's not, however, always the case with arbitrage ad networks. I mean, Mm -hmm. sometimes arbitrage ad networks don't take a position. They just persuade the publisher to permit the arbitrage ad network to sell it as as effectively as possible and and Mm -hmm. then- some portion of that sale comes back to the publisher. So there, there are lots of variations in the deal types, but the ad network. Right. I mean, be- they could buy it on an impression basis, sell it on a click basis. Exactly. Um, Which was often the case. Right. Yeah. And they were adding some kind of optimization. I, I would probably use air quotes, I guess, because it wasn't very sophisticated back then. Well, so, some were. Uh, CPX Interactive was, I would say, quite sophisticated. Uh, InterClick was pretty sophisticated as well. Uh, Blue Lithium. A lot of these companies uh, got bought first by AOL, MSN, Yahoo. Mm-hmm. And then the next phase would be publishers uh, looking to buy ad networks. Uh, Forbes had looked at Undertone uh, very carefully. and was... But publishers at the time, particularly premium publishers, were... Typically, if I remember correctly, unhappy with a lot of these ad networks because they saw the ad networks and some of them went public, like advertising.com and I guess I guess ValueClick too, and, and saw the the margins that um, that these networks had. I mean, they they had very good margins. Yes. Um, and publishers said, "Well, that money's coming from us, right?" That that is what publishers said. Yes. I, I mean, was that fair at the time? It's. I guess it's a fair. Fair is a hard <laughs> question to answer. Uh, you choose to do business with yeah. companies, and and on the web, uh, the 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 phrase uh, coopetition comes up a lot. Sure. So so yes, a publisher will will do a deal uh, with Collective Media as an example of another very capable ad network that that uh, assists in the sale of unsold inventory, but then kind of whatever the right word is be grown i'm not sure <laughs> the, the fact that we're doing business with them and they're undermining yeah, us yeah. and so so it was a weird business it's a weird business when the people you're doing business with are also people that you're you're sort of competing with and you sort of resent the people that you're doing business with however that that defines the internet right that is as true with facebook and google and hearst yeah <laughs> and that is as true with amazon and uh, apple and and the ad ne- uh, and the ad uh, programmatic ad companies. So let's fast forward to um, I guess it would be around two thousand four, like Right Media. Like yes. it would seem like Right Media would be you know one of the um, important milestones in the development of programmatic. Absolutely. Explain so. explain what Right Media was doing at that time and why it was important. Right Media started when Mike Walworth was working at DoubleClick and had an idea for how to sell inventory using computers. Mm-hmm. And DoubleClick at the time was was really just an, an ad server. Yes, but they had also gotten into the Abacus business for data. Oh, yeah, that didn't and, work out. Well, they were probably shell-shocked right. about the marketplace's reaction. It was a big pro- just for those who were not around for Abacus, which is probably most people. Um, it was a, what was it? It was like a, a catalog data company. Correct. And they were going to marry, I mean, at the time, it's funny looking back that it was a privacy furor, um, and they were going to mar- marry this like offline data with uh, online data. 
Yes, and now those practices are quite commonplace. Yeah. <laughs> Absolutely. But at the time the FTC got involved, everyone was like, this yes. is my big God. Deal. That's um, right. And they got singed. And I, I suspect, I don't, I don't know this for a fact, but I suspect given the timing that that probably was at least part of why Mike Walrath's uh, innovation, his mm-hmm. idea uh, was, was met with some resistance. So he well, left What the was company. the idea originally? To use computers to optimize the sale of media. So, so computers had been used to optimize the uh, delivery uh, for, for KPI outcomes uh, right. back then. But Mike, Mike Walrus' idea was, as, as I've studied it, to optimize for, for selling the inventory. And it was essentially the birth of real-time bidding. It was the precursor mm-hmm. to the creation of real-time bidding, which he and, he and uh, Brian O'Kelly co-created at, at right media and and also but originally they were going to have ad networks bidding against each other right which you, you, they had, did. you had to have you had to have a seat yes. and like ad networks had seats right correct cpx interactive for example yeah. had one of the biggest seats buying on the right media exchange so it wasn't like a it wasn't like adwords from google in which you know hundreds of thousands at the time i guess it's millions now but yes. hundreds of thousands of people could go in and bid um, this was a different model. It was an auction for intermediaries to compete for media. Okay. That, that's true. That's my understanding as well. But it was it was the beginning of an auction where uh, more and more participants, uh, an auction that could scale. It was it was the beginning of auction based display. I mean, what was also happening, I should mention, is Jeff Green had a company called uh, Ad ECN, which he later sold to Microsoft. Okay. And, and of course, Mike Walrath uh, and, and, and Noah and Jonah Goodhart, who were key and active investors in Right Media, they sold Right Media in 2007 to Yahoo. Mm-hmm. But I would say those two companies, more than any other company, far more so than any other company, moved the, the, the digital advertising business from the the prior paradigm which was ad networks to the newer paradigm which became ad tech mm-hmm. and and then the literal birth of rtb at least how i mark it is january 1st 2010 when adx when google's adx went 2.0 and and mm-hmm. real-time bidding began and then all the right. other exchanges followed but, but suit. to back up i mean it, the the key was it seems like was Yahoo bought Right Media? Yes. Um, Microsoft bought, bought Ad ECN probably yes. around the same time, and then Google. Actually, no, wait. Microsoft also bought Aquanif. Yes, that was a major acquisition. Um, and then Google turned around and bought DoubleClick. Correct. And that was that was very important for. I mean, obviously, looking back, but it's like, why was that so important? Google up through two thousand seven had. Uh, Conquer dominated the paid search part of digital advertising, huge market share. And, and so next they, they needed, Google needed a way to pursue uh, mm-hmm. the display ad marketplace, the banner ad marketplace. But they sort of had with AdSense at the time. Yes, but not, not nearly 
to the degree they've accomplished by having acquired right. uh, DoubleClick. And why was DoubleClick so important? I mean, because it, 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 it was the plumbing, basically, of the display of the banner ad business. For publishers, yes. Yeah. And, and had a lot of agencies, DoubleClick for Advertisers was mm -hmm. the product at the time. But my understanding is, is this was Neil Mohan's strategy. Neil's now at YouTube. Yeah. But at the time ran display for Google and put a strategic plan together that led to the acquisition of DoubleClick, which to your question, positioned Google to have an ad server a computer that makes decisions about how ads are served but at, at pretty much every publisher in, in America and Western Europe, mm -hmm. uh, to have to acquire a company that gives you that footprint where all the display ad decisions are made across all the publisher's inventory, it was really uh, quite a brilliant mm -hmm. acquisition. Yeah, and, um, and then AdX was birthed. Yes. Quick break here to remind you of Digiday's other podcasts. We have Digiday Live, for instance, which features the best sessions of our many events. We have a uh, episode up right now that is a conversation I had recently at our Digiday Publishing Summit with Pop Sugar CRO Jeff Schiller. It's a really good conversation. I recommend it. I'm biased, admittedly. We also have Making Marketing, which is hosted by Shreem Patak. She talks to leading minds on the marketing side. Uh, she recently had on the founder of DTC brand, Mizzen in Maine to talk about uh, why the DTC space is headed for a shakeout. Check them both out wherever you get your podcasts. Now back to the episode. Explain the importance of AdX. Well, AdX, AdX was the ad exchange that DoubleClick was working on. It was part of why Google acquired DoubleClick. AdX yeah. had, had been birthed under yeah. I think uh, DoubleClick. They, I think they like announced it like one week and then Google bought them like... Like I, next month or something like that. Well, I'm, I I don't recall the exact timing. It it to the best of my recollection, it was in development and, and more than in development, even available at least the 1.0 version, um, for for longer than a week prior to the acquisition. Yeah. But it it was a part of why uh, DoubleClick had the interest in. Yeah. I, I'm sorry, Google had the interest in DoubleClick. So the idea of AdX was a stock exchange for ads. Yes, which which would be Google's or rather DoubleClick's version of what Right Media and AdACN had created. Mm -hmm. Um, but that puts Google in a in a strange position, right? I mean, like they're running. They're the place where the auction is taking place, yet they're a principal too in that auction. Yes. Well, Google Google uh, conquers the whole uh, right. supply chain. So not not only would they acquire the, the 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 auction system, the New York Stock Exchange, in in your analogy, but then they would also they're uh, also Goldman Sachs. Well, they, yeah, they would go acquire the the best. At the time, DSP, Invite Media, uh, which would become Google Bid Manager. Okay. Uh, Wait, explain what a DSP is. A, a DSP is a uh, buying machine for display ad impressions. Okay. So if you're going to have an auction, you got to have a way to participate in the auction because, you know, yes. it's computers dealing with computers. That's right. So you can use your DSP, your demand side platform machine 
to bid for impressions on the exchange. So there's a, a DSP and then there's a counterpart called an SSP, a sell-side platform. So mm -hmm. the publisher licenses the SSP or a set of SSPs and the advertiser licenses the DSP or a set of DSPs. And so Google bought Invite Media and Google also bought an SSP uh, at that time so that they had the complete um, connection from buyer to seller. Is that necessarily a good thing? It just seems strange that one company would own the exchange where the auction is taking place. It would own the means of which the buyers participate in that exchange, and then it owns the means by which the sellers participate in the, uh, the auction. As well as the ad server that is the decisioning logic of whether you serve a direct sold ad or whether you auction it. Right. So it's four pieces in, in that okay. uh, dialogue. It's four pieces, the ad server, the SSP, the ad exchange, the DSP, yes. So that had to be a profound development about how programmatic developed in the fact that Google put all of these pieces, pieces together. together. Absolutely, it's quite brilliant. On it's Google's part. On Google's part. Yes. What is the impact then on the overall market um, with having, I mean, look, there's advantages to having like one, you know, having a fragmented system can be a mess, right? Um, but having one company control all of those different parts would seem like it would have um, some strategic consequences for both buyers and sellers. That's definitely the case. And, and there's a fifth piece that's actually quite critical that, that we didn't, we mentioned earlier, but we didn't mention mm -hmm. in that context. That fifth piece is AdWords, because AdWords demand, which is the biggest source of ad demand anywhere, is also plugged into that exchange. So if you're the exchange operator, let, let's kind of juxtapose it to independent operators. Mm -hmm. So there, there are... There, there are plenty of non-Google SSPs. Uh, Pubmatic would be an example. Rubicon would be another example. Uh, AppNexus would be another example, now AT&T. There are plenty of non-Google DSPs. Uh, the Trade Desk is an example, uh, having great success. And that's what Jeff Green went on to do, Trade Desk. Correct, yes. That's what Jeff Green at ECN went on to do. Mm -hmm. and, and he's having great success. And, and there are other DSPs, many other DSPs. But there is no question that AdX and, and what was AdMeld, which was, that the, was the SSP, the SSP that Google acquired, which is, has, has now become just part of AdX mm -hmm. functionally. It's not an independent product. And, and using Google uh, DoubleClick Bid Manager, DBM, there's a new product name for it now. Um, Google's naming is, is kind of weird. The, well, the, the, the double-click naming system was deprecated yeah. a bunch of months ago. But people still use it. But people still use it. Um, and, and AdWords, the, the, the Google systems wire together seamlessly, semi-seamlessly. <laughs> but, but the non-Google systems wire together uh, less seamlessly, semi-seamlessly. <laughs> mm -hmm. uh, you are... Definitely advantaged if you use as an advertiser AdWords or uh, DoubleClick Bid Manager, uh, DBM, the new, the, whatever the new product name is. Yeah. Um, 
you're advantaged. Uh, how are you advantaged? Well, in many ways, but here's one example. The, the cookie syncing that is uh, a critical part of user I- identification. So, so when you go to the, yeah. as a consumer, the New York Times. Uh, Figuring out if they're the right person for the right ad. That's right. The first step in the process is seeing if you have a, yeah. a, an ability to read the license plate. And, and that is cookie syncing. And so Google can do cookie syncing uh, far better than anybody in their closed system, in, in that version of their system, the closed part, the part where it's all Google products. Uh, so Google's uh, DFP ad server, uh, despite being a third-party domain, actually drops first-party cookie. So mm-hmm. it can circumvent uh, some of the uh, ch- increased challenges of dropping third-party cookies. And so if you can drop first-party cookies and you can use your own home, I'll call them home-developed, not homegrown, because a lot of them were acquired. But, but once you got them in the house, they become home, homegrown, home-developed systems. You can get them to sync up in ways that the, the outside systems, like an AppNexus DSP, can't sync up with. That's why companies like AppNexus and Index Exchange and the Trade Desk have co-developed their own cookie syncing systems, mm-hmm. including with the IAB, who tries to do a good job of creating standards of, of uniformity to, to the best of their ability, level the playing field for mm-hmm. everyone. But by far, Google is obviously the most important player when it comes to ad tech. Absolutely. Yeah. And, and Facebook is not. Facebook operates on its, in its own little world. Correct. Okay. I, explain that. Why, why Facebook does that and doesn't have the need to be part of this overall programmatic um, ecosystem just because they're giant? Well, fa- Facebook is a part of the ecosystem of ad tech, but um, we all log into Facebook. We, we all, in ex- exchange for the value we derive from using Facebook, uh, share data with Facebook. Mm-hmm. And, and so that data is uh, guarded at Facebook for, for lots of important reasons, one of which is fa- Facebook's business model of, of auctioning advertising. Yeah. And, and auctioning advertising that is almost always uh, de- demographically, geographically, psychographically, or some combination of the three, interest-based, um, sold, sold for, for targeting purposes. And, and so you, you have this, this huge system of inventory, given all their users and the, and mm-hmm. the level of engagement of their users, and they, they built a simple-to-use AdWords-like buying interface. So it's not, it's not real-time bidding. It's not real-time bidding. Uh, Facebook had an ad exchange mm-hmm. that was RTB. It's FBX? Yes, yeah. and it's since been sunset. Okay. It, it wasn't. And it was mostly used for app inventory, third-party app inventory, not uh, Facebook proper inventory, O and O. Right. So we see a lot of... Um, privacy laws going into effect right now. Um, and it seems like there is going to be less data 
that is going to be available for the use of ad targeting, if you will. Um, how is that going to affect all of the stuff that we've talked about and how it works? Well, how, how it will... I mean, because this is all premised on the easy availability and the massive quantity of data that's available in digital media, right? The, the way the system works today... Yeah. I mean, without premised, all the data, why even have all this stuff? Like, Well, there, there was a time where the majority of display ads, banner ads, mm -hmm. were, were sold based on context. I can remember when I joined Forbes in January of 2000, the way ads were sold were uh, day of the week. Okay. There were six advertisers at the time, one for each weekday and then one for the two weekend days. I think I remember this. I tried yeah. to do like prime time. It was a like prime time was a different time because people only used uh, the internet at work. So like, prime time was, I don't know, like three o'clock in the afternoon or something. Well, and, <laughs> and the, the weekend advertiser was typically a spirits advertiser. Okay. Uh, a sponsor, I should say. But but there were also display ads. I shouldn't uh, neglect to mention that there were also rotating display ads. But the primary way that particular site was sold when, when I had arrived back then uh, was a sponsorship context model, like you sponsored Forbes. And then what happened in the, in the months and years uh, beyond that was very context sale-based. IBM would sponsor the um, the tech section, mm -hmm. regardless of the user profile. Um, Fidelity Investments would sponsor the personal finance section. I think that it was a combination of, to the best of my recollection, ad networks and also our own homegrown targeting work that, that at least from my experience, uh, led to more and more audience sales, audience targeting. Mm -hmm. Are we going back to a, a, a situation where context is is more important? I, I it's my position. Uh, sometimes in the industry, whether it's digital media or any other in industry, because uh, I started in uh, technology and and computer networks, and w when I began my work in the uh, early 90s, I, I worked with routers, computer routers. And so you tended to be either a uh, Cisco person or a, or back then a Wellfleet router person. Okay. Or, or I guess it's not unlike there was a time, maybe it's still the case, where you were either a PC person or a Mac person. Mm -hmm. and, and so I think at digital media, the, the, one of the things that developed is, is it audience or is it context? So, so that's a long way for me to go without answering your question. I don't think context has ever not mattered or been subordinate to audience. I, I think it's... The pendulum seems like it swung pretty f clearly once RTB came on the scene towards this idea of I can find the right person at the right time um, and by necessity context becomes just kind of subordinate yeah i mean right well let, 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 i mean let, let's think this out loud and and may, maybe your position's a better one than mine if, if 20 years ago the only audience targeting you could perform as as a marketer was 
through context, the proxy of context. Yeah. So I want to reach readers of of a fishing magazine because you're going to reach a certain audience. So I'll I'll run ads in the fishing magazine and I'll therefore reach fisher persons. <laughs> but but um, as technology allowed fisher persons in Utah to be targeted, or fisher persons who do who 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 fish in salt water versus fresh water, the the tech. Uh, ushered in the 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 phase of not only can I target context as an attribute as a proxy, uh, but I can also target characteristics of of the readers themselves, and I can filter out some, and I can filter in some. So I would say that as that evolved in in my timeline, anyway, that's in the in the mid two thousands, the um, attribute of context went from being the only thing to a thing and and not an unimportant thing it's it's a critically important thing context um but but it became one uh one one variable in in the equation that people began to use to to tar to to increase their targeting of advertising mm-hmm. and so it it didn't simplify into context versus audience in the general sense it was more specific it if even if we leave context as a general category and and without being broken down at all Mm -hmm. uh, but it could be broken down so so l magazine can be broken down into fashion or other sub contexts as well i mean a taxonomist would take this down to a very discreet atomized level but but then in the audience area if if you were to take say three general categories uh geographic demographic psychographic then you could drill down as as a taxonomist would further and further and further and further so so the tech has empowered almost a decision tree of of ways that one can target advertising and then computers if you can if you can buy it in real time just to bring it back to the first point the auction the rtb if you can buy the media with a computer in real time then you can train that computer to buy more of something and less of something so if as you buy ads you buy ads based on the decision tree outcome to the left and the decision tree outcome to the right and then your computers measure the fact that on the right, you're having success, and on the left, you're not having success, relatively speaking. One's better than the other. Then your computer's heavy up on the buying to the, to the right mm-hmm. and, and devalue and slow down or eliminate the buying on the left. That, that's computational ad buying. And so what has to be done really well in that in that model is um, machine learning, essentially, because you're training machines to do an ever better and better and better job. Now, there's one piece of this puzzle that I would say is the weakest link in the chain across the board, including with Google. This is the part of our ecosystem that is just super immature attribution. You have to be able to count what really drove the outcome you seek. And right now, attribution is is quite still, poor. It's still crude. It's it's south of crude, actually. 
Okay. So that's the next big step, I guess, yes. in programmatic. But I mean, obviously there's a lot of like critics of how programmatic has evolved, but it's not going anywhere. I mean, it, it doesn't seem like we'd be going backwards um, from with all the advances in machine learning and what we're seeing in automation across the board in the economy. I can't imagine this is not going to continue uh, to be the way that ads are bought and sold. Totally agree. In, in fact, I would argue that the position that it's not going anywhere might not be precisely correct. It is going somewhere. <laughs> All the data suggests it's going to completely take over how advertising is done. Because it's, it's too appealing to be able to have a computer make a decision in the moment about how to spend your money. And, and so once uh, attribution technologies advance, which I think will take a very long time, and a lot of innovation... And a lot of uh, industry cooperation. Part of part of the advancement of attribution tech uh, needs to be the advancement of data quality standards, and because you need to understand the 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 variables that you're buying against. The IB uh, just announced a data quality standard. Hopefully, it's the first of many. It's like a nutrition label, where for third party. Um, data, the, the uh, amount of carbs, fat, <laughs> protein, that kind of thing are, are quantified. And I think it's very important for our industry, and certainly Hearst plans to do this, we get behind it. Because um, d data quality standards are very important to advance a, a rather um, substandard uh, attribution metering system. So that advertisers can truly know when a dollar spent was worth spending. Right. All right, Mike, I'm going to have you back on to talk only about attribution and data quality. I'd love we to. We can do 35, 40 minutes on that. Okay. Thanks so much for taking you, this walk through programmatic. Thank you very much. And thank you all for listening. Our producer is Aditi Sangal. Please leave us a rating and a review on iTunes or wherever you are listening to this podcast. This helps our podcast be discovered. And of course, I'm reading my favorite reviews at the end of the episode, and this is my favorite part. On LinkedIn, my favorite social network, um, just today, Dan Stoner, that is his name, yes, Dan Stoner, had this to say. Brian Marcy's interview with Pamela Drucker Mann aired earlier in the month, but I think I've listened to it a dozen times already. If you're in the pu publishing business, you know you're the canary in the content coal mine. Change or die. If your brand is woke, it's in a constant state of pivot and absolutely doing the opposite of dying. Thank you, Dan, for doing the opposite of dying. If you have more feedback, please write me. I am brian at digiday.com or tweet me. I am at bmarcy on Twitter. Um, or you can reach out on LinkedIn wherever because I love LinkedIn. Um, thank you again. We'll be back next week with a new episode.